You are listening to the Next Best Picture Podcast, and this is our review of I thought you might be able to help me with the case. Any idea where I could find him? Your police plan on taking me in. I would much prefer that to the alternative. was built off the back of slaves. Replicants are the future, but I can only make so many. I had the luck, and he has the key. I think I found him. That's not possible. If this gets out, we've bought ourselves a war. You're a cop. I did your job once. Things were simpler then. What do you want? I want to ask you some questions. What happened? I covered my tracks. Scrambled the records. We were being hunted. By who? They know you're here. You do not know what pain is yet. You will learn. Bring it to me. This breaks the world. We have to go. I'm coming with you. The future of the species is finally unearthed. All right, everyone, you were just listening to the trailer for Blade Runner 2049, and the story is as follows. Officer K, a new Blade Runner for the Los Angeles Police Department, unearths a long-buried secret that has the potential to plunge what's left of society into chaos. His discovery leads him on a quest to find Rick Deckard, a former Blade Runner who's been missing for 30 years. The film stars Ryan Gosling, Harrison Ford, Anna de Armas, Sylvia Hoekes, Robin Wright, Mackenzie Davis, Carla Jury, Lenny James, Dave Batista, and Jared Leto. It is directed by Denis Villeneuve and written by Hampton Fancher and Michael Green. Joining me for this review, I have a guest. It is Jorge from The Splash Report. How are you today? Hey, good morning, everybody. How are you? Uh, we're doing pretty well over here, all things considered, uh, mostly because leading up to this, I rewatched uh, the final cut version of the original 1982 Blade Runner. So I wanted to make sure I was prepared as humanly possible. Get it? Humanly possible. <laughs> um, and, you know, heading into this, I, I'll admit I was nervous because there's just a lot riding on this. I hold the first film in very high esteem. Um, and I don't want to reveal all of my thoughts this early on, but I think that they, uh, I think that they nailed it. So first question I want to ask you, Jorge, is what has been your experience with the original 1982 Blade Runner film, and what were your expectations heading into 2049? 
Yeah, so I saw the first the first film got a long time ago when I was, you know, a teenager and I liked it a lot, but like a lot of movies that, you know, were big iconic movies from the 70s and 80s, it suffered for me from a little bit of like really that's this is the movie that everyone makes a big deal about, you know, and it, it the movie is so important and so influential that it's really affected and it, you can see, you know, it's been replicated, haha, get it? So many times. <laughs> um that it it you know it took me a while to like really grow into it. I ended up really liking the movie though. I've always been a fan of it. Um, and I, I actually saw it again on Sunday to you know kind of the same reasoning as you to be prepared for Blade Runner. Then I saw the new one on Monday, and my expectations were high. I mean, I was not as nervous as maybe you were because I kind of trust Denis Villeneuve implicitly, and I was not disappointed. I liked the movie a lot. I think I gave it a B plus, which I think is a you know very good grade, <laughs> and I, I really enjoyed it. Well, that's really good to hear. I mean, for me, I think the the thing I was most worried about heading into twenty forty nine was the running time. Uh, it's two hours forty three minutes long. It's a near three hour film, and I know Denny Villeneuve's style. He's made it pretty clear that he is a slow burn director who focuses on mood and atmosphere to create an immersive experience for the viewer. We've seen this applied in Arrival, Sicario, Prisoners, I mean, Enemy especially. So yeah. I was worried that this movie was going to leave me feeling bored. I also knew that from the trailers that this was not going to be an action film because the trailers were trying very, very hard to put in what seemed to be the only action beats in the film in the trailer. And even those were not like big set piece moments uh, with huge spectacle. This is not Mad Max Fury Road. Right. Um, however, on a technical level, I think it's fair to say that this is the Mad Max Fury Road of 2017. Yeah, that's probably right. I mean, well, let's a couple of things. You know, I love the thing that you said about the trailers because I don't watch movie trailers for many reasons, including that, you know, a lot of them have so many spoilers. But there's that deceptive element, too. I mean, you're so right that they try to pack in the all the action moments. Um, you know, I was rewatching the new Murder on the Orient Express trailer just as a tangent, and they put in all these action-packed moments. You know, spoilers to people who don't know the story. It's not an action movie. It's not even <laughs> close to an action movie. All they do is talk. But, you know, they try to sell people on this action concept. Um, and you're completely right that, uh, you know, Blade Runner 2049 was never going to be that. Um, I guess I'm in the, you know, vocal minority. I don't mind the three-hour movie if it's, if it's well done. And Danny Villeneuve, as you said, you know, he's the slow burn and it works well. I was never bored. Um, you know, we'll get into a little bit of the mood later, I'm sure. And the mood sometimes is a little strange, like in the original. But I, I think that the runtime was fine if, you know, if you have three hours to kill, you know, or if you are willing to spend the three hours, you should be okay. Yeah, no, just in terms of it being like the Mad Max of, of you know, 2017, you know, if you mean like in terms of the Oscars or things like that, that's an interesting question because, you know, Mad Max is trying, you know, to have a sort of cerebral point to the story about, you know, domination and resources and, and fighting against your oppressor. And I'm not sure that that's quite there in this movie, which might make it harder to, uh, you know, get people... Um, Emotionally invested. Yeah, Academy people, at least. Well, here's the thing, though, with Blade Runner 2049, and I'm dying to talk about the technical elements, but you bring up an interesting point there about the story itself. I think that much like the original 1982 film, uh, the story, the actual story, is a bit thin, but what 
really, really helps to propel it forward and what I think is going to create a long shelf life for 2049 is the themes of the film, the ambiguity within those themes, and how upon rewatches, the film doesn't quite give you all the answers to the questions that it asks. And that's something that's going to create a debate for years to come in terms of what does it mean to actually really be human? It's a quintessential sci-fi question that the genre has been asking now for decades. And that is at the heart of both of these films. However, I think 2049, what it does is it not only expands upon that question that was asked within the first film, but it also finds new ways to tackle the question um, that I have not seen other sci-fi films do as often, and it's made the experience um, that much more unique for me. Um, you know, the first film, I could probably chalk it up to, it's just, here's this guy who has lost his humanity, and he's going around and he's killing replicants, and somehow, by the end of the film, he rediscovers his humanity again, and that's the whole movie. Like, that's yeah. that's Blade Runner in a nutshell. Yeah. Blade Runner 2049 is a lot more complex than that. A lot more. But yet on the surface level, it's still a very thin movie that you could chalk up to a very quick sentence. Yeah, Here's yeah. a Blade Runner who's going around killing replicants, and I don't want to get into spoilers. We'll get into those later. Stuff happens, things are revealed, and it makes the audience question uh, their own humanity, their own reality. And it's just really, really fascinating as a result. I mean – to stretch that out over three hours long, I personally did not have an issue with this at all uh, because it's something that out of respect for the majority of the movie going audience out there, I can totally understand if somebody's like, oh, my God, this movie's so long. Oh, my God, it moves so slow. Oh, my God. Like, I get it. I get it. But I think that that length and that slow, deliberate pace is very, very, very important to engage your mind with the questions that the plot is asking. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, you know it's three hours, so if, if you don't have the time, don't go. If, if you're, as I said earlier, if you have the time, go and, and you'll like it. Um, the, yeah, I mean, the questions that it asks, it's interesting. I mean, I, you know, Denny Villeneuve is a very smart guy, and, you know, Arrival was by far my favorite movie last year. Oh, yeah, one of my favorites, too. Amazing. You know, it has just so much, you know, to think about, and it raises so many questions, and, and makes it really makes you think about a lot of things. The, in the what's real and what's not thing about Blade Runner that you're absolutely right is there. To me, it works. I mean, it does work in the movie. It is there, and it, it it's effectively presented. But if you th- you know, it's derivative of the derivative of itself. You know, like I mean, think of the Matrix, right? Like that's the whole that's the whole crux at the heart of the Matrix. What's right. real? What's not? What's reality? And um, you know, maybe they are they, they are stealing that from the original Blade Runner. So. You know, they're stealing it from themselves, but it feels a little bit like, okay, so what else? Um, so that's that's where I am in terms of, is this story going to be as compelling as something like a Mad Max or a Gravity, right? If we're going back to movies that were very technical, that did well with not just, the, the you know, the public and the audience, but critics and Academy members and awards voters. It, does this movie have that? going for it and perhaps it does i'm just not sure yet well i've heard some complaints from some people that the film is a little cold and distant actually but that's because we're dealing with characters that may or may not be human yeah so that fine line is going to be there and i think that that is actually the most interesting thing to ponder is it you know does this film have a degree of humanity in it um if so 
what does it mean to really be human? Uh, what can it really be boiled down to? The first Blade Runner uh, tried its best to really boil it down to uh, memories, saying how memories are what makes a human human. Um, but we've uh, you know found out that memories are implemented and they're manufactured and so on and so forth for these characters. And it's something that I thought really Scott did a really great job in the original, the original cut of Blade Runner of really um, kind of keeping it ambiguous as to whether or not Deckard was a replicant. And then I feel like with the final cut, the director's cut, all the other cuts that have come after that of the original film, it seems like Ridley Scott is leaning more towards, okay, Deckard is definitely a replicant. Interesting. What I love so much about this film is I love that, and I, I mean, I don't know if this is a spoiler necessarily, but it's still left to be ambiguous in the end. And I absolutely love that Denny Villeneuve doesn't take the easy way out with anything. Um, and what this all kind of just boils down to and what you could just, you know, ultimately put a cap on it and say is, my God, God bless the, the movie studios for giving him carte blanche to do really whatever he wanted with what is a 150, 180, I don't know, million dollar budget and explore these ideas and not have there be these big action set pieces. And like, this is a very daring studio film that is smart blockbuster filmmaking on the level of something that, you know, we haven't really seen maybe since I don't even know. I don't even want to say something like inception because inception had more action set pieces than this does. This is like, like an anomaly. And I, I'm just so thankful that this film exists and that somebody greenlit to make it happen, <laughs> you know? Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, you know, he, he definitely, you're right. He keeps that ambiguous. It's funny. Uh, you know, the, the coldness of it that you mentioned a minute ago, it's, you're so right. And it's one of the things that I actually really like about the original and this movie. I mean, it's that kind of neo-noir mood of kind of disinterest and, you know, detachment, you know, lost, as you said, lost interest in life or, or humanity. And that's, that's certainly Harrison Ford. And that's certainly Ryan Gosling, who, you know, who's very good at portraying that with his kind of like moody eyes and, his pouty mouth. It's funny. I like that a lot about the movies. Um, and I think that's one of the elements that works well in them. Can we talk about Gosling? Yeah. Can we just talk about actually how I, 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 I this might be blasphemy for some people, but I think his performance here is better than what he did in La La Land last year. <laughs> well, for La La Land, I don't think he had a good performance. So yes, I completely agree. I mean, but he got nominated for an Oscar for La La Land, well, and he's not going to get an Oscar nomination for this. I'm just saying. <laughs> yeah, know? no, he's not. He's not. That's right. I mean, but getting an Oscar, you know, you know, you know this as well as anyone else. I mean, there was a weak year last year for for best actors. Yeah. And, uh, we'll, we'll talk about that some other time. He he was great. I mean, he's he's. He's well cast in movies like this that require him to be, you know, ambiguously um, human. As he, you know, he's detached. He's a real human being. At the being. same time, yeah, he cares and he wants to care. You know, he develops this relationship with this hologram. I hope that's not a spoiler. I mean, it's pretty. Um, he has this relationship with this this basically non-existent person, but it, it's very real. And to him, you know, he does a very good job of convincing us that he's really into this this being. It's amazing how um, that that storyline, that relationship, harkens so much back to her for me. 
in many ways, mm-hmm. uh, which is another film that is, you know, a, I guess you could almost say it's a sci-fi masterpiece. I don't know. It depends on who you ask, what genre that film falls under. But Ryan Gosling is just so good at playing stoic, tough guy yeah. characters yeah. Um, like he was in Drive a couple years ago. Right. right and right. there's a lot of parallels and similarities between the two characters of uh, the driver and Kay in this movie. And I, I, I just... I, you know what? I was I went into this not expecting a great performance from Ryan Gosling. I was expecting him to just carry the film and be the leading man. But he gave a great performance, something that I was truly not expecting. Um, and let me tell you, too, you know what's also phenomenal about this movie? Harrison Ford does not phone it in. And he gives a surprisingly emotional and atypical Harrison Ford performance that is something that, you know, what is it? In Force Awakens, he did the same thing. Mm -hmm. People thought, is he coming in for the paycheck and going to just sleepwalk due to role? No. He shows his commitment here, and I I thought he was phenomenal. So both of them are really, really good in this. Yeah, I thought Harrison Ford was great. It's funny, you know, you mentioned Force Awakens. I mean, he did do an Indiana Jones in the last several years. It's funny that he's revisiting all of these iconic roles. Um, I liked him a lot in Blade Runner 2049. I wonder how people will feel if he starts, you know, doing that as a matter of course, you know, going back. It could be a good thing, actually. It could be, you know, the, the nostalgia in the movies right now is alive and well. So to have Harrison Ford come back uh, to all of these, uh, you know, iconic, uh, you know, objects or items from the 80s and 70s may be a very good thing. And he did a good job here. Yeah, we need a sequel called Air Force Two. I'm just saying. Air Force Two. <laughs> it needs to happen. <laughs> I mean, they did it in Independence Day, right? The president was yes. around and he was crazy, but that didn't work so well for them. Another thing I was also really surprised about and I was not quite expecting with this movie was that the other performances by people other than Gosling and Ford um, are all serviceable or very, very good. Nobody's bad in this movie. And because of the long running time, everybody gets their moment to shine, which even Jared Leto, who's only in, what, two, three scenes in a movie? You know, he's not hammy and chewing up the scenery, and he actually creates um, a very sinister villain here. You know, and who's who's um, this one replicant character in this movie? I, uh, her name is Sylvia Hoax. Mm-hmm. Man, is she great in this. She's amazing. I would say, I would say that of all the people you mentioned, somehow ironically, uh, Jared Leto has the, the least good, of the good performances. He's the least memorable just because he's just kind of, he has one tone. But she is so good. She really scares the shit out of you. And she, I mean, I loved her performance. I thought she was the best of, of all of those. Yeah, this movie's going to make her a star. Uh, that's yeah. for sure. I think that we're going to see her cast in a lot of stuff now um, afterwards. Um, you know, who else do you have in this? Robin Wright, who's really carved out a role for herself, is playing like these tough as nails, badass yeah. female types. Um, yeah. And we saw that in Wonder Woman. I mean, she plays one on House of Cards. She, she's fan, she's fantastic as well. I she's, mean, it, she's very good. But I mean, seriously, you can't. I can't get. I can't talk enough about uh, Sylvia Hoag. She's just so good. And, you know, this is like badass. I mean, talk about badass female character. You know, I, one thing that I, I've always you know resented is when it's an older woman and she's the bad the bad guy. You know, here she's she's not. She's just she's just bad, and it's it works really well. I guess she's kind of like the Daryl Hannah character. In the original, but you know, with with better drop kicks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I'm with you on that for sure. And it's something that um, 
it, just once again, I just was not expecting. I, I thought from the film's marketing that Jared Leto would be the true front and center bad guy. Right, but right, it's really no, Sylvia right. Hoax who's... No, uh, it's her. Oh, yeah. I don't know if it was just the way it was written or if it was a scheduling thing or what it was, but um, they've done a really great job of just subverting expectations with the film's marketing, um, not giving away a lot of the spoilers in the trailers, not giving away who the villain of the film actually is. I mean... This film has just really, really, really played its audience to to a T here to a point where um, heading into this movie, I was expecting one thing and I walked out getting something completely different. And I was just over the moon, overjoyed with what I received. So we haven't talked about the uh, we haven't talked about the, you know, that specifically about the, you know, technical aspects, the cinematography, oh. the, sound, the art direction. So oh, where do we know, begin? Yeah. What are your thoughts? Oh, my God. Oh, oh God. Um, if there's any justice in this world. This is Roger Deakins' year to win the Oscar for Best Cinematography. (laughs) Because, and I know we've said this before with other films, I remember in 2007, Assassination of Jesse James, I was like, oh, there's no way he's going to lose. That's one of the most beautiful movies I've ever seen. You know, but in Blade Runner 2049, the way that he manipulates light, uh, bends light, moves it, you know, there are scenes that takes place within the Wallace uh, Corporation um, with yellow mm-hmm. lights and the ref- uh, reflections of the water on the walls and to just create this very unique look, mood, and atmosphere that as somebody who you know studied you know filmmaking in college and a little bit about cinematography, I, I just was like, oh my God, like this this guy is there's a reason why he's considered the greatest cinematographer alive today, you know and he just proves it once again here. Look, it's the best cinematography I've seen all year. I mean, for me. No question. No, yeah. If if he loses, it'll be because you know they the movie just they're they're not connecting with the movie. If he wins, I think it'll be because it's the best, not necessarily because it's Roger Deakins. I don't I don't want to get too far into the argument that I think we're all going to have in the Oscar Twitter universe over the next few months. But the one thing that I always say is the name his name is not on the ballot, and so that's it's him being Roger Deakins is not sufficient for him to win. It has to be a movie that they see. And it has to be a movie that they like. And, it, you know, are they going to put in a three-hour movie on a screener at home? They might. If, if the movie has a Best Picture nomination and if it does really well, you know, absolutely is it possible. Right now, I think it's too soon to tell. But I completely agree with you that if there's any justice, he will win. Not just for this movie. I mean, his whole career. But this is by far the best cinematography I've seen this year. I'm almost tempted to say it might be the best work that Deakins has ever done. Close to it, probably. There were so many images in this movie that just leaped off the screen for me. I mean, there's one scene in particular where four hands are grasping, like, the back of Ryan Gosling's uh, head that was just just such striking imagery. Um, the scene where he goes to, I, I believe it's Las Vegas in the wake of... Uh, of a nuclear, uh, I guess, bomb exploded there, and there was, like, radiation and stuff, and there's, like, just dust everywhere, and it's just this orange hue to everything. Um, The way that he also films a scene where there's an empty stage with lights, and there's a hologram of Elvis Presley uh, performing, Mm -hmm. but the lights and the way they just keep flickering and how Ryan Gosling is able to still stay, like, you know, um, properly lit in frame, it, it just... Oh my God, uh, I was I was in pure cinematic heaven while watching this movie. It, it's actually, I mean, it's so good that it's even distracting a little bit from what's going on. You want to stare at it, and and that, I mean, that's not necessarily a bad thing. I mean, there's not much going on in that Elvis scene, <laughs> so 
you know, you, you, you are watching the cinematography as a character in the movie, which is mo overall a good thing, I think, in, in movies like this. And, and it's and the, the ones that you mentioned, plus all the dark scenes, all the, the rain scenes in, in Los Angeles and elsewhere also work well. And I think the art direction is also pretty good. Uh, you know, they're, they're, they're borrowing very heavily from uh, the original movie, uh, but those, those statues that they have, in, in, especially in Las Vegas, it's, it's kind of funny because there is actually one like that now in Vegas, and I think they're constructing another one, either there or in, uh, maybe in, in D.C., like a monument to women. Yeah. So it's actually funny because it does seem to, I mean, that, that's entirely, it seems plausible that in 30 years you're going to have those, those things in Las Vegas. Uh, I, I just found that amusing. And they were they were very well rendered, so that that works very well. I mean, his apartment, uh, Ryan Gosling's apartment. You know, the the art direction there is kind of simple, but you know, also effective. Yeah, it speaks a lot to about the character, especially. Right, right, and it's 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 all over. You know, you have this kind of cool set in the corporation in the Jared Leto scenes. Uh, so it's all you know, it's all very you know, very careful, very meticulous. Obviously, it's Denis Villeneuve. And I think people will like that and will respond well to that. Yeah, I definitely think it's probably a front runner now at this point in production design. I still haven't seen The Shape of Water yet, but I've heard the production design in that movie is also quite spectacular. And I would say it's between those two films uh, for the Oscars at this point. Yeah, The Shape of Water, honestly, is a great movie. I mean, I think that com if you compare the two and if you buy into the theory that some people buy into, which is that, you know, it's not always the most, the best cinematography, but the most. Um, then you know Blade Runner would win on both in both categories. It's a little you know, a little less uh, showy or or, or uh, bombastic in The Shape of Water, as good as it is. And I think either is a worthy winner. Yeah. Uh, another thing too, I was uh, not quite expecting with this movie. Uh, I mean, I, I guess I should have expected it, but there was uh, there was two elements uh, here, and that's to do with audio and the overall uh, soundscape of the film. I knew that the sound effects, the sound mixing, I knew all that was going to be spectacular. What I was not expecting was I was not expecting after, what was it, they only had like one month to write the score for this film, was for Hans Zimmer and Benjamin uh, Wal Walfish, I think his name is. Um, he did the score for uh, It most recently. Yeah. Um, I was not expecting that score to be as good as it was and actually now be my favorite film score of 2017 so far. Um, I was really, really, really impressed with the work that this film did in, in, once again, in immersing you into the world, not just with the visuals, but with the overall soundscape. I saw this film in a Dolby Atmos uh, theater with some of the most impeccable sound you could ever get from a, from a theater watching experience. And it just my my chair was rocking and I just I was just blown away by just the overall quality of the work in this movie. Yeah, I agree. Interesting that you say that about the score. I normally pick up on the score uh, very quickly in a movie, and this one I I, I don't remember. I, I'm going to have to see it again. I don't remember the score as much as I remember the visuals for some reason. Download the score on uh, whatever you use iTunes or Spotify or something because to be honest with you, I've been listening to it on its own and. Just when I'm walking through the streets of New York City and I'm playing the score, I just, I feel like Ryan Gosling in that coat, man. <laughs> That's great. That was me. That's me with the Interstellar soundtrack. I still listen to it. Like, I go to the beach and I'm like, it's six in the morning and the sun's coming up and I put on and I'm like thinking of the stars. 
So there you go. <laughs> That's yeah. great, though. And Hans Zimmer, man. Can't go wrong. Yeah. Can't yeah. go wrong with yeah. that, man. Uh, yeah. So we talked about production design. We talked about the cinematography, the sound work in the film. Uh, costumes are, uh, you know, I would say, like, I, I've, I found it, like, very weird that, like, Harrison Ford, was, his only costume was T-shirt and jeans. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Uh, but other than that, though, I mean, costumes are also uh, really well done in this film. But the one other noteworthy thing I want to bring up is the film's visual effects. Yeah, visual effects, right. There are some visual effects in this movie where I don't know where the visual effects start and the practical effects begin. I, I just I could not tell the difference at times. I, I agree. That's one of the things in this movie that was the best. I mean, really, the, the, the blurring of reality and, and, and fiction uh, exists on so many levels, and that's one of them. And I think that's, that's what... You know, that's one of the things that works really well. I, I was just utterly confused as to what was real and what was not. Certainly, I mean, I, I, I don't want to this, you know, I want to be careful with spoilers here, but there's some parts where there are some characters that I, I obviously are not real, but look real. And it's just amazing. Yeah. No, they, they do a really great job with superimposing images on top of one another. Very great use of holograms, um, reflective light um, to create this uh, transparency uh, between characters. I I I've been saying pretty much all sum, since the summer that War for the Planet of the Apes is our visual effects winner, and now I'm starting to think it's going to be Blade Runner at this point. Yeah, I don't. It's not. It's not Planet of the Apes, man. It's just not going to happen. Which is crazy because that film should have won visual effects back yeah. when Rise of the Planet of the Apes came out in 2011, and here we are. It's, it's they just continue to keep upping the ante with the realism of those apes, and it's just as they enough. do. <laughs> and it's so good. It's so good. The, the visual effects in, in the movie of Planet of the Apes are so good. But you you really have to take into account uh, genre bias. I've always I believe in that. And it wasn't until what was it Ex Machina two years ago? Yeah. Um, I had been looking, and whenever there had been a Best Picture nominee in visual effects for like as, as long as the category has existed, basically. Yep. The, the the best picture nominee would always win, always. Which if, if there has me worried because yeah. So the ex machina broke that trend, and you could argue that it broke it because there were three best picture nominees that year. I think it was Mad Max and two others. Yeah, Revenant, uh, the Martian, um, and Martian. the Revenant. Yeah. yeah. So they might have split it, and you know, ex machina was very good. So, uh, and then and then in a year like Interstellar, where there's five non best picture nominees, Interstellar was the closest to uh, you know that was the one that had the prestigious you know name or whatever yeah you so, always got to go with the prestige factor for sure you really do i mean it's it's weird i mean they might be willing to kind of go for suicide squad and makeup for some reason but that category of visual effects that's how it's been maybe it's going to change but if, if you have planet of the apes competing against blade runner i don't think that's even a close call yeah i think you got to go with blade runner in that instance all righty um at this point i want to actually now talk about the spoilers but before we do I want you to give your final thoughts on Blade Runner 2049, a great out of 10. And we've been kind of talking about Oscar potential a little bit here and there. But if you could just give a quick rundown recap of uh, what potential you see for it. Okay, so final thoughts. Great movie. Very well made. Uh, I think fans of the original and fans of sci-fi movies will and dystopian future movies will enjoy it a lot. I highly recommend seeing it. Uh, I would give it an 8 out of 10. And in terms of Oscar potentials right now I'm going to stick with all of the technical categories so visual effects two sound nominations cinematography and art direction okay all right but no director no picture <sighs> nope I don't think so okay interesting uh, I think Blade Runner 2049 is better than the original 
I think it expands on the original in all the right ways while carving out its own identity for itself. I am so grateful that this film exists, that a studio actually greenlit this movie and gave Denis Villeneuve everything he wanted to translate his vision to the screen because the results are just absolutely breathtaking. From the audio to the visual, I mean, this film is just a flat knockout masterpiece of sci-fi. And as a result of that, I am giving Blade Runner 2049 my first 10 out of 10 of 2017. I think that this is a film that, like the original, 35 years from now, I think we're still going to be talking about it. I think it's still going to enjoy a great shelf life, and I think that it's something that we look, we're going to look back on and, you know, just 2017, Blade Runner 2049, going to just come to mind for most people right away when they think about this year in film. So... Yeah, I think it's a I think it's a modern day masterpiece. I, I I really really do at this point. Wow! And as far as its Oscar potential is concerned, I, while I don't have it in picture, I am currently flirting with the idea of Denis Villeneuve getting a lone director nomination, hot off the heels of his director nomination for Arrival last year. I wonder how much the director's branch is going to be impressed with the work that he did in this. Mind you, um, he's been floating for me somewhere between the number five and the number like eight position for a while, so I could easily take him out. So that's probably like the shakiest ground of all. I agree with you that this is probably the front runner for cinematography, visual effects, and production design. I would not be surprised if it won those. Um, I do not think it gets in for editing because this film is not does not have flashy editing and it's got very slow editing that doesn't do anything like fancy like Arrival did last year. Right. Um, and, and like you said, same, it's not an action movie. So. Right. And it's the same uh, editor, Joe Walker. Um, so it, it, it's it's got a very, very deliberate pace to it. So I don't, I don't see it getting in there. Um, I don't see it getting into screenplay. I don't see any of the acting getting in. Um, and I also don't see it getting in for score, even though I personally love the score to this film. So, you know, those three technical categories, both sounds, as you said before. And I mean, maybe, maybe costumes, right? I don't know. Yeah, perhaps, perhaps costumes, I guess. Yeah. It's, yeah, there's a lot of, there's a lot of period pieces that I'm thinking about right now, but I I haven't actually thought about that category that closely. I I think you're very, very smart if you have it in for um, cinematography production design, visual effects, and both sounds. I, I think that that is the safest zone to be in when making your predictions for the Oscars for Blade Runner 2049. Okay, and with that said now, let's uh, move over into our spoiler territory now where Jorge and I can talk about anything we want in regards to Blade Runner 2049. You want answers? I think I'm entitled. You want answers! I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! Okay, so we find out from the first couple of minutes of the film, uh, shockingly enough, something that I probably should have picked up on the trailers, but I didn't. Kay, played by Ryan Gosling, is a replicant. Yeah, so here's what I don't get about that. <laughs> why Why if it's, why reveal that immediately, I guess? I, mean, I, I do get it now, but I, I saw that and I was like, okay, why are you telling us that? Why isn't that the twist, in other words? Because there's other twists to come. <laughs> right, there's more twists, yeah. There's more twists, so they want to set you up for that. I think that, you know, that, I, what that said to me, and I think that it, it kind of fits with the, the whole arc of movie history or, or even, you know, world history where we are from the 80s to where we are today. I mean, I'm generalizing here, but if you think about the 80s and if you think a lot of, about the movies that were made in the 80s, 
there was a lot of anxiety about technology, about the future, machines overtaking us, right? You have Terminator, you have other movies like that, um, that kind of express these anxieties. And, and, and in Blade Runner, at least until you get into the parts where you're wondering whether Harrison Ford's character is a replicant, it's really humans against the machines, right? I mean, I think that's the setup, but certainly the setup of the, you know, of the title crawl is, or whatever. Sure. And here, you know, we are now today a little maybe less afraid about machines in the future. There's still some of that anxiety, and it's certainly still there in movies. But we're in nostalgia territory now, right? Mad Max is nostalgia, Jurassic World, uh, so many movies that were, or, or you can cynically say, you know, parentheses, lack of imagination. But there's a lot of nostalgia going on. And what I see in 2049 is that now it's flipped, right? Now the, the replicants are the good guys and the, machine, and the humans are the bad guys. So I, I, I like that. I think it's interesting. And I think it says a lot about, you know, how our cultural thinking about these things has evolved. So it was a good reveal from the beginning. And, and I wanted to root for the character being a replicant that that's who i wanted to root for yeah yeah i i'm with you on that and you know what the most interesting thing to me about the early reveal and not holding it off till later is that this film takes a lot of tropes within the genre and it completely flips them on its head um and the, my favorite one of all and the one that really 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 took me back and i just i loved i i like literally i was like oh my god thank you so much for making this decision in the screenplay is that Ryan Gosling is not the quote-unquote chosen one. Yeah. He is not the hero that is there to save the world and make a better future for all replicants and so on and so forth. They actually allude to that. You know, there's like this resistance and they come to him and, you know, there's a lot of elements where, you know, it's building up for us to think that Ryan Gosling is the savior of Which the would film. have been terrible. Would have been terrible. Correct. Instead, he's on his own personal story, his own personal journey, and it ties in with Harrison Ford and his personal journey that is continuing from the first Blade Runner film. And yeah. I thought that that was so much better. So, so much oh. better. To focus oh, on. so much better. So much better. Like, yeah. And, and, you know, Harrison Ford's journey, you know, this idea that there was a child that was created by his character and Rachel, uh, played by Sean Young in the original uh, 1982 film, that alone brought up, like, so many great questions. The idea of if you believe that Deckard is a replicant, can replicants reproduce? The idea that if Deckard is a human and he gets with a replicant, can they still create a child? And that's where the film started asking questions where I was alluding to before. I have never really seen a sci-fi film uh, ask those questions before in such a in such a large-scale film. You know, it's, traditionally you'll get stuff like that in a smaller um, sci-fi film, but nothing like you know, big budget studio film. And so as a result of that, we are given what I think is one of the most remarkable scenes of the whole film. And that is a fully 100,000% believable CGI version of young Sean Young. <laughs> incredible. Incredible. I could not, I could not believe that. I mean, I really could not. It, I, every one of those that we've seen so far, Philip Seymour Hoffman, um, you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger, I guess, was one of the first ones. Um, who else? Paul Walker. Star Wars could, Rogue One last year. Rogue One last year. Thank you. That's the one I was thinking of. You know, believable, close. You could, or, or, yeah. I mean, this was just incredible. 
I, I, I was actually scrutinizing. I was looking really, really hard to see if I could catch, okay, does this not look like the real thing? And you know where you know what did it for me? Okay. Um, the lighting. So that the lighting didn't help? No, the lighting actually helped to mask any imperfections I probably would have found. I didn't think that was the reason why it worked so well. Oh, okay, got it. Yeah, no, I mean, it, it's, it's, it's fantastic. Yeah, it was completely believable. And that moment when they shoot her in the head, uh, gutted me actually, uh, you know, and uh, as it apparently did, uh, Deckard. <laughs> um, we also get a cameo from James, uh, uh, James, uh, was it Edward James? Uh, oh my God, I can't say his name. Almost. Edward James, almost. almost. Yes, almost, I got yeah. it out there. But that's but he's but he's playing himself, the older. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's kind of like a nod to the original film, and doesn't really factor so much into the story later on or anything like that. It made me also like wonder though, like, oh my God, are we gonna get like a Rucker Howard like? Anything, just a nod, <laughs> a wink at the screen, something, anything. Because the Roy yeah. Batty character, uh, if you ask most people, mo- I think I think most people would say that uh, Howard's performance in the first film might be the, the single best aspect of the original Blade Runner. Yeah, agreed, agreed. But to go back to your point about the the story, though, like when I was so I was watching it and I was like, okay, this is bizarre because it's so obvious that they're setting that that he's the chosen one. I mean, how is that not obvious? And it's so obvious you know so it's not it doesn't work it just doesn't work is he trying to to trick you here but he does trick you and um so obviously i was wrong and i i underestimated Denis Villeneuve for 30 seconds and i i regret having done that um so the, the way that they deal with all of that is good and that uh yeah that makes you know that makes the movie you know it's not as good as the reveals in arrival necessarily but it's pretty good uh yeah i, I i'm with you on that though that the reveal especially the scene where you know, what is it? He visits. Uh, he visits. The, um, I can't remember her name, but she's the one who creates the memories. Oh right. For the replicants. Right, right, right. And it turns out that she's actually the child, but we don't know yeah. that yet. And right. she reveals to him that he's actually not the child. Right. And he has this like. Well, she doesn't reveal it to him, right? I thought she did. No, she that gets revealed to him by. Um, the woman warriors that, oh, are, that that's find him at, gotcha. and they say she and he goes she so I can't remember what does she reveal to him that causes him to lose his shit then he, she reveals to him that his dream of the uh, oh. but, he, but he lied but she lied to him right she says to him that this dream that the he memory had of the horse about the memory of the horse was real but she's lying to him yes yes so she's lying to him she's lying to us and that's that's where you get tricked mm-hmm but, you know, she's crying while she's doing that. You know, she, something's wrong. She hesitates. So they give you, like, enough of a hint to kind of doubt her. Like, well, that's because, you, you know, the, the reveal and the ultimate truth is that they're made from the same, I think it's, what, genetic makeup or something like that. And he's ultimately a decoy. Right. Exactly. What's very fascinating, though, is that he's actually serving for the people that would be inevitably hunting him down. And he happens right. to be and a Blade Runner. And hunting her down. You know, so yeah. that, that, that to me is uh, really, really fascinating. And I love that Robin Wright even uh, covers for him at one point yeah. in the movie uh, because – you know, you can look at it in so many different ways. Either it's it's a form of respect. She's attracted to him. Uh, I I don't know, but for some reason loyalty. or another, yeah, it's I loyalty. It's loyalty, right? I mean, she she he was loyal to her, and and yeah, and it's respect for what he had achieved. But is it loyalty you know? if you have if you're programmed to obey orders? 
Right, right, right. Yeah, well, but but then we go back to the whole, you know, human versus fiction, real versus not real thing, right? I mean, it. She understands that he's programmed to obey orders, but you know, it's inevitable for a human to kind of react and respond and connect with that in some sort of emotional way. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, I think that's what that's that's how you can explain that, and I think that's that's realistic. I mean, if you had a robot that was basically essentially everything, you know, human minus one thing. A human being would develop some sort of a tra- uh, attachment to it. I think that's that's uh, realistic. Well, speaking of attachment, um, his uh, his holographic girlfriend. Uh, that scene when they ultimately take her out, surprisingly emotional. Yeah. Even though it was very, it was set up to happen, and I knew it was coming. I mean, we all knew it was coming uh, because they allude to the danger of him taking along the journey with him. So when it does happen. Um, even though it was quite expected, I was still taken aback by um, how well Denny played up the moment overall. Uh, what else did I want to touch upon with this movie uh, in terms of its spoilers? Uh, I think the movie ends on the most perfect note imaginable. Yeah, agreed. Agreed. That's it. All of that, the way that they kind of wrap it all up is, you know, it's very well done. Yeah, they have the original uh, score playing, uh, you know, the Tears and Rain track. And instead of it being rain, it's snow. And Gosling's, you know, laying in the snow and he's dying. And they kind of do like a reverse drive, uh, where in drive, it, start, it starts off with him. Uh, you don't know if he's dead. And then he blinks and he, it turns out he's okay. Yeah. This one, he's going from slowly being alive to dying. And then he's just still. And I, I, I don't know if you got the same vibe from that as I did, but I was like, oh, my God, they, they're pulling a reverse drive, you know, with Ryan Gosling here. No, I hadn't picked up on that, but that's very clever. I think you're right. Yeah, because uh, Gosling just does still stoic uh, extremely yeah. well. <laughs> he does. He and does. then, you know, the film ultimately wraps up with Harrison Ford being reunited with his daughter. Um, but what's most and interesting up, and setting up a sequel, by the way. But that's the thing, though. How do you do a sequel to this? Well, I mean, you have her. Yeah? Okay. And Harrison Ford is still around. I suppose. I, I don't know when Harrison Ford thinks he's going to make this movie or when the studio ever thinks they're going to make this movie. According to well, early uh, box office forecasts right now, um, I think the film might struggle to make back its money. But Well, then, it, then, they won't, then there won't be a sequel. Yeah. Like that's yeah, but they certainly left themselves the the possibility. Yeah, but I, I was kind of taken aback by that because in the end, even though uh Sylvia Hoax uh gets a freaking awesome uh death scene, uh Jared Leto's character is still ticking and still around. Oh, that's another sequel. Mm-hmm. So maybe because we didn't see enough of him in this one, maybe they're, you know, leaving the yeah, yeah, okay. That makes sense. That ultimately makes sense. I don't like it. But it makes sense. I don't either. I don't either. I agreed. Agreed. But, but I do love that this film uh, wraps up with Kay's, uh, Kay's journey. You know, it's not about the bigger resistance against the Wallace Corporation. Uh, right. And maybe that's why the film doesn't choose to focus so much in on that. This is still, at the end of the day, uh, an intimate story, despite its large scale. And that kind of, like I said, that kind of level of filmmaking on such a large, uh, big budget scaled film is practically unheard of in today's day yeah it's, it's i mean it's a rival you know it's it's his style it's an intimate story on a grand scale with and so i agree with you it's unheard of outside of his 
work or a rare outside of his work and it's why I, a lot of people myself included like him so much yeah yeah definitely uh he's proven himself to be a modern master and I, I i am first in line for whatever he does next i don't care what it is absolutely do you have anything else you want to talk about in regards to blade runner 2049 I, th- I think that's it i think we covered the basis cool um oh one last thing i want to just point out i didn't understand this connection until after the film was over but i finally put two and two together that i thought was really quite amazing the bees um that are on ryan gosling's uh hand and when he goes to uh vegas yeah the bees signify that deckard was the one who laid the flower at rachel's grave ah okay got it i i just i i just drew that connection later on because i was wondering who left that tiny little yellow flower you know the grave by the grave by the bees yeah the grave by the tree the grave by the tree exactly yeah and, yeah, and, and I'm like, oh, it had to be Deckard. And I just right. thought, like, oh, that's very sweet. And uh, something very, very tiny in the film that I picked up on after the fact, and it made me realize, what else did I not pick up on? What other little things are in Blade Runner 2049? And that just goes back to the repeat yeah, viewings. Yeah, that, that's a movie that absolutely, if you're into the, the series, you need to see more than one time. Absolutely. Yeah, totally. Okay, well, thank you so much for uh, taking the time to review Blade Runner 2049 with me, Jorge. Oh, yeah. Thanks for the invite had a blast uh, gushing over it uh where can they find you on the internet oh i'm still on twitter at j don burnham and on splash report uh so find me there excellent you can find me at next best picture thank you so much everyone for listening to the next best picture podcast review of blade runner 2049 you can subscribe to the next best picture podcast on itunes soundcloud google play stitcher TuneIn, player fm and CastBox. Be sure to leave us a review on iTunes. Nothing less than five stars is acceptable, and we will see you all next time. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.